what do people want in LP and what makes a great LP? And one of the key attributes is permanent capital. So we raised what, it's really an evergreen structure. We created it, it's synthetic, it's a complicated LLC, but we have the ability to take proceeds, right, when we get money back from our funds and use it to make future capital calls or other GPs. And that's just an entirely different structure than what the other vehicles use. And we do that because our GPs want us to have money when they need it. And that's, that's our way of doing it. Welcome, everybody. I'm Mark Peter Davis, Managing Partner of Interplay Ventures. On this podcast, I interview innovators about their strategies, industries, and decisions. On this week's episode, I chat with Beezer Clarkson of Sapphire Partners. Sapphire Partners invest in early-stage venture capital funds, and Beezer leads their investment team, focusing on both domestic and international funds. Now, Beezer's a star, and I've known her for a long time. She's worked at a variety of marquee firms, ranging from Wall Street to venture funds. In addition to leading Sapphire Partners, Beezer also launched OpenLP, a platform that helps foster great understanding between entrepreneurs, GPs, and LPs across the venture ecosystem. So I recommend you check that out. There's a lot of helpful information in this conversation, and if anyone is interested in raising capital from institutional LPs, this is definitely a worthwhile listen. Enjoy. This episode is brought to you by ReShield. ReShield is part of the FounderShield family of insurance brokerage companies. It's a tech-enabled insurance brokerage focused on real estate. If you're interested in learning more, visit reshield.co. Welcome, Beezer. Thanks for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. All right. So the way I usually run this is instead of asking you to do your background, I do it for you. But the idea, yeah, I might brag a little bit more than you would be willing to otherwise. So if that's okay, I'm going to start and introduce you. You're the best. Thank you. Great. I'll save you the awkwardness. Here we go. Uh, Today, we have Beezer Clarkson of Sapphire Partners on the show. She's a partner at Sapphire Partners, which is a division of Sapphire Ventures. I think I got that right. One of the preeminent Silicon Valley firms. Sapphire both directs, invests directly in companies and invests in venture funds as a limited partner. And that's the side of the house Beezer is on. They're a big firm. They run about $7 billion of capital. Uh, and they're invested directly in about 120 companies, 20 of which have already gone public. 40 have been acquired. It's an incredible stat. Through Sapphire, Beezer has been involved with launching OpenLP, a website that helps educate VCs on LP perspectives. So if you're a VC and you're listening to this, worth checking out. Uh, before Sapphire, Beezer had held a variety of investment roles at firms like DFJ, which is where we first met, and before that at the Amidiar Network. Uh, she got her professional training at Morgan Stanley, Towers Perrin, Hewlett Packard, and she has way too many logos to go through <laughs> at this point. That's a hell of a resume, no doubt. Uh, what did I miss? Anything we should include, Beezer? Um, so the only thing that's not really, a, you don't notice on my resume because it literally was about a nine months job was when I came out of business school in 2000, I joined what would now be called a micro fund, but at the time was a major fund. It was a $40 million pre-seed mm. fund in the meatpacking district in New York, which unfortunately did not survive the 2001 train wreck that was took out most of tech. What firm was that? It was called Launch Center 39. It's, oh. it's really, it was sort of endemic of the, of the era, but it was cool because it was like the first sort of VC in-house. We had an incubator and I got to do both. And one of the founding partners was Albert Wenger, who's now with Union Square. So, right. Yes, yeah, so my, my first job in VC was this micro fund accelerator. So now it's very hip. But back then it was you know, a big fund at $40 million. Right. 
Yeah. Know, the world's the world's very different in New York now than it was back then. Yes. Oh my goodness. I mean, talk we can talk about that if we want, but it is wildly different. Which is in all good ways, right? So let's start off though with just baselining for everybody, giving them a little color on Sapphire. Would you mind just giving us the high level overview on the firm? Sure. I've already covered some of the basic stats, but more yeah. how you guys do what you do and how you operate. Sure. So as you said, I represent Sapphire Partners, which is the LP arm. We have actually three different investing activities on the platform, and they're all managed by separate pools of capital, separate teams. We we love each other and we you know like to talk to each other, but we don't commingle the activities. Some folks do and, and we don't. Um, and so the L, we can talk about the LP side, so I'll put that aside for now. But the the large growth fund that you were talking about, all those logos that you see on the website, all the discussion of direct companies that you ever hear associated with Sapphire Ventures, that's all the direct team. And they invest at, I would say, post-product market fit is the best way to think about it. So sometimes that can be as early as A, but usually more B+. Plus. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to brag on their behalf. They're amazing. Like You, you read the roster of their, of their investments. It's just really impressive what they've been able to do. Um, and then we have a newer fund, which is actually the Series A fund on the platform, and it's called Sapphire Sport. And that was launched two years ago now. Sorry, the pandemic makes timeframes just really wonky in my head. Mm-hmm. Um, and they focus, again, at the early stage, they're direct, and they focus at the intersection of media, technology, and sport, which when they launched this, started thinking about three years ago, was mm-hmm. much more nascent. And now it's you know, in the midst of, of all discussions. So it's been really fun watching them do that. And that's, that's a newer fund, and it's smaller. Um, they're on Fund One. They're currently investing, but you can all the information is on our website, so you can check out each of the strategies. So between those different divisions, how is the capital split? Seven billions a lot to run. Yes. I'm sure not all of that's actively being deployed at the moment. So, what, how much do you know? How much is being deployed, and how it's kind of divided across the three divisions? So you can go into. So we're registered with the SEC, so I have to caveat everything with the RIA voice, but. Um, the sport fundraise, I want to say it was like 110 million ish, and that's that's out there. And then the growth fund's deploying a, a, a 1.5 ish billion dollar vehicle. Honestly, I, I can't keep up. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what you're seeing on the website is an it's a large vehicle. View. It's a large vehicle. And what you're seeing, on, and they also have um, they have the ability to write up to the 75 or 100 million dollar check so they can really run with their companies. So, they're doing more Series C and D. I mean, well, it, you, you can't can- move that kind of capital in A round. Uh, no, they tend to come in a little bit later as a, you know, post-product market fit. And you can do yeah. one of the things that's changed over time and they've grown with it is that in the beginning when they did their first um, growth fund in 2011-ish, when people raised growth rounds, there wasn't a lot of additional rounds, right? You raised a growth round and then you went public or, or got mm-hmm. acquired. But now when you look at, we don't have a state private forever narrative as prevalently in the market, but there's still a significant number of rounds that go and a lot of larger dollars. So they follow on and they support their companies. So the initial check might not be $75 million, but you can certainly move that into a company over time. Like That's fantastic. We see it in the market all the time. That's fantastic. And then on the LP side of the house, our fund is structured very differently. So the both the sport and the growth fund, the Sapphire Ventures Fund, are structured as traditional venture funds. We're structured very differently because as an LP, our, we came to life in 2012. And the context is we had a chance to think through, well, what, what do people want in LP and what makes a great LP? Hmm. And one of the key attributes is permanent capital. So we raised what it's really an evergreen structure. We created it. It's synthetic. It's a complicated LLC. But we have the ability to take proceeds, right, when we get money back from our funds and use it to make future capital calls of our other GPs. And that's just an entirely different structure 
than what the other vehicles use. And we do that because our GPs want us to have money when they need it. And that's that's our way of doing it, right? Oh, we're going to have to talk about this. <laughs> we're going to have to pause right there. So, okay. So who are the LP? So for everyone who's listening, you know, when, when you hear the LP, it's limited partner. And those are the investors in venture funds in this context. But LPs who are, who are fund of funds also have their own LPs. So who's behind you guys? So we're, we're just a different beast and we love it and we're unusual and we've been unusual from day one and fascinating. different is better than better. So we have a single source of capital for the LP side of the house okay. um, and we origined out of money from SAP, the large uh, mm-hmm. enterprise software company based in Germany. Um, and they are a fantastic LP because they understood that building our LP vehicle would take significant amounts of money and it, it takes significant amount of time, right? And they've backstopped that. But now since we can roll the money forward, the idea is to really be a self-supporting, sustaining vehicle because as you make, you know, as we make our proceeds, we can use that to meet our future needs. So they've launched it, but the idea is that we'll just become our own our own source. Okay. So you're let, let's let's just bring this down to reality. So let's say you're a super wealthy person who's gonna fund a fund of funds. Yes. That is an LP in other funds. Okay, yes. got all that. If the money always gets recycled, when does your family get it back? Well, you, how does this work? You you can meet you make more. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good answer. The simple answer is we do Go have on. a high we do have a high recycling need, right. um, but that doesn't mean to say you have to use all of it. Like as long as you meet the needs of what. So what what also is true about our platform is that we're very consistent in how much we deploy per year. So we don't think of it as a, people always ask, what's your fund size? And I, we just don't think that way because that's not how we're structured. We deploy right. about 125 million in commitments per year. Again, this is the LP side. Right. And if it flexes up or down in a given year, like it doesn't matter. It's just, it's a number to shoot for. What you're not going to do is zero one year and be like, oh, the market's crazy. We're going to sit it out and then try to do 500 million the next year. Like that, that will mess things up. But if you're consistent in how you're doing it, you can actually then plan for the future. And we do work with um, a carry structure. So you can, like, the LPs will get fee and carry. And that's, that's part of our structure. Whereas in endowment and foundations, they have different structures because they don't work on a fee and carry basis. Right. And we chose that purposefully because also some, some fund of funds don't work on fee and carry. They get points for the dollars under management. So if they raise a billion-dollar vehicle, they'll get paid whatever the basis points is on that, kind of regardless of performance. But if their performance is terrible, obviously they can't raise in the future. But it's right. a different way of doing it. and we. We pick fee and carry because we live and die by the success of what we do. And we live and die by the success of our GPs. And we just want it to be aligned. Like we're, we're all in on venture. That's all we do. We focus on it. And when we decided when we launched the LP arm that that's, we were just going to all in baby. <laughs> that's great. But you guys are budgeting inflows based on fund cycles yeah. and outflows based on how much capital you have mm-hmm. to yeah. make that conveyor Which, belt. So we do work. a lot of math. Um, okay. and, in the, and also it's why in the beginning for anyone who wants to start an evergreen LP base, um, you do need to have commitments for a significant amount of money and it's not my place to share, but we, we have backstops. So if right. things take a little while longer and you can do modeling, usually if you're a GP and you're wondering when you're going to get most of your money back, typically it's between years eight and 10. Now, when companies want to stay private longer, that pushes the curve out as one can right. imagine, which we can talk about whether or not that's actually healthy for the ecosystem because PSC employees of companies that are waiting on their options to mean something don't get as much. So there's some downdrafts to that. But you can, you can model it out and assuming performance, you see when things are coming back. So you do need 
And I say this to people launching their new fund of funds, you really need to be able to see three or four fund cycles down the road for each of your GPs. Mm. So when we went to structure our business without sharing too much of the inner workings, like we, we were very conscious that it takes a lot of money to get this going. Yeah, it's fascinating because we're, the risk in that for folks listening to me is the varying time to exit for companies. And we're going to talk about that, I'm sure, in this conversation a little bit more, but I want to talk about in the context of this. Just in the eh, three, four years ago, the liquidity, liquidity in the market, there was kind of no end in sight. There was a lot of companies sitting you know, post-unicorn status with no way out. Yep. And the SPAC boom was not just about SPACs. I think it was about unclogging the back end of the funnel. Sure. And so now we've got a hopefully a more reasonable time frame. But it, I can imagine this is really hard to plan, but I guess works if your benefactor it's, is willing to write more, ca- more checks correct. if you guys get stuck. Correct. You need to, we're, how do I say it? You want to be, you want to lean forward, but still make sure you're thinking through all the diff- different permutations mm-hmm. um, of what have the oh, oh things aren't going as well as we thought it might what else do we do so we we launched with that in mind so we were mindful right. in the beginning um the other thing is from the lp perspective you have to take a very long-term view it is extraordinarily unlikely you're going to see any money back in any meaningful way from a fund before it's eight or nine years old and if you don't mm. plan for that like that is it's historic you can look at it now what we're noticing just to throw an interesting curveball out is we have um crypto has been producing much faster and I don't know right. if that's just a blip because of this recent crypto market that we're in, but there's been a, you can see it everywhere in the market. And this isn't just Coinbase. You can see it in the tokens. You can see it in different areas that there's been a yeah. lot of liquidity generated. I would call it more in a four to five year time frame, And that's, mm-hmm. but that's very crypto specific. And who knows if that's going to repeat beyond my powers of knowledge, right? Right. That doesn't surprise me because I think everyone's betting there on long-term prospects. We, were, we did uh, Coinbase's Series A. Congratulations. Thank you. You can speak more about then about how crypto is working. <laughs> no, but we, there's, you know, you're always betting on future prospects and the crypto companies very often when they make money are in the flow of the capital. Mm-hmm. And so it's really easy to have a really substantial revenue model because transactions is, as most people know, is one of the best revenue models out there on the web. So, all right. I want to, I want to take a step back though. So Sapphire is huge. You've got a lot of money under management. You've got a lot of companies. You have a lot of partners too. How many partners are on the LP side alone? When you buy partners, do you mean people on, my, on the team or do you mean investments that we've made? Uh, people on the team. Oh, we're, we're Let's tight, do both. We're a tight team of about six. We're hiring someone who is supposed to let me know tomorrow if they're going to take the offer. So everyone Whoever that is, fingers for me. If you're listening, take the job. <laughs> Beezer's okay. great. We'll look on the listener list, see if he's there. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. But we keep, we keep the team tight. Um, for, for multiple reasons, um, it, we like being a small, cohesive team, so it works for us. The growth team's gotten, you can look on the website and see everybody's names and faces. The growth team has grown. I was, I think I was person number 11 to mm-hmm. join Sapphire in 2012, and I think we're going to be 100 people in the next 12-ish months. It's hard to judge because we've been, and a lot of the growth is on the growth team because as their fund sizes have grown, they've grown more people. We have a very robust, we call it portfolio growth, but Think of it as this value add with a lot of thought leadership, talent, marketing, business development connections. That team has grown significantly over the last eight years. We have um, a number of people doing talent. You know, as I said, business development, marketing. We also have um, the firm operations have to flex with you. Like any company, you don't, you don't grow what you do without the infrastructure that goes with it. So we have a lot more people now 
in key roles, like heads of people and finance and all those things. That's fascinating. You don't hear that with a lot of uh, the financial institutions having the full company mid-management layer. Well, I would say, I think this is one of the benefits. I know I'm I'm biased, so I'll just own that, um, of being both an LP and a GP is that when you're like, well, if we're talking to our GPs and saying this is best practice and we don't do it ourselves, like bad on us, that's crazy. Right. So, so it, it does it does help, right? Because you know that. And we also, on the direct side, invest in these amazing portfolio companies and you see how how thoughtful they are in operating. And if you don't learn from that, again, Absolutely. better on you, right? Yeah. Yeah, all the information's there. Mm-hmm. So how many funds are you guys invested on the LP side? So you've got six people on the team and how many mm-hmm. funds do you support? It's an excellent question. So if the LP answer is actually a bit more about who your core relationships are because okay. and you think of it as a firm like interplay like if we were in lp and interplay and you did four funds i wouldn't think of it as if you ask me how many funds i'd be like four oh, right let's let's but talk it's about really the a relationship right yeah, right and then you might have an opportunity fund and a life science fund so like these things like so i honestly don't know how many funds we have i've lost good funds uh, yeah. entities uh, brands Honestly, logos we, we do run um LP have portfolio constructions just the same way GPs do. So we like to run a fairly concentrated world. Um, mm-hmm. So we'd say we have, I don't know, Baker's dozen of core U.S. relationships. Okay. And our, I should give a little context. We do about 70% of our commitments on a dollar basis into U.S. managers. Okay. And then about, call it 20 to 25% into European managers. And then the rest is in Israel. And these are all early stage, which we define as series A and some seed. And we, sometimes flex like in Europe, we started out with more seed, which we can talk about if that's interesting and the same thing in Israel, but predominantly in the U S we're focused on the series a and are exploring seed more, I should say now. Um, but that also dictates so in Europe, we have another handful of core managers. So we, again, we want to make sure that we have the right size team for what we're doing, but you also from a portfolio construction side standpoint, want to be mindful of all that because it plays together. What's the profile of a fund that you guys invest in? So for folks listening who are thinking about, coming to Sapphire Partners um, for their next fund. What's the number of partners or the, what, what makes something a fit? And it's, it's got to be more than Series A. Oh, correct. Correct. Yeah. So I answer this question in a way that I, I hope is helpful because we don't have a pers- We've definitely seen what best practices look like historically, but that doesn't mean to say that's what it's going to look like in the future. And I think it's really important to be open to that. Otherwise, you'll miss things. So instead, we think about it as um, the return potential of a vehicle. So for Series A, we underwrite them to, to a 3x net, meaning when we look at the collective, what they're investing in, who they are, their portfolio construction, how they're doing all their stuff, do we think that can produce a 3x net? And it's easier if there's historical numbers to look at, but we have yeah. backed net new company, net new funds to the world. And then it's, you know, it's harder because you can't rely on past history to, to tell. And then for seed, we underwrite to a 5X net. And just to throw something funky out, I'm now hearing um, LPs ask about 10X net for the very smaller funds, because I got to tell you, the performance is there. In this mm. market, if you had a piece of, you know, Coinbase and a $10 million mm. fund and you had a significant enough piece, like that could be it. Yeah, we have sure. funds who are, have, we have funds that have double digit DPI and multiple double digit TVPI, mm-hmm. which Again, 18 months ago was less true, but in this, this market has just been, for certain areas, on fire. Not for all areas, but certain ones. So for folks listening, it's a good educational opportunity. Will you explain DPI and TVPI? Sure. So the simplest way I think about DPI is that the money back. So if I invest $10 in interplay, 
at the end of everything, net of everything, net of every cost, every tax, every everything, do I make $3 back on my $1 or five or 10, or did I make one dollar like fifty? Mm-hmm. That's DPI because you have to net back the management fees and all these things, which it ends up being not that hard math, but you have a lot of line items. And TVPI, think of it as the numbers on paper. So your companies are still, some of your private companies can still be included. So let's say you have a position in, what's a big company that hasn't gone public yet? I don't know. Pick your favorite. What's your favorite? Course Hero. Warby Parker's a couple it, we're in. Okay. That haven't gone so, so you will have value of that. It hasn't matriculated as money back into your pocket or, or, or my pocket or wherever your LPs are. But on paper, you might be, you, you show the growth. And that's TVPI. It's total right. value to paid in capital. But just think of it as your, as your paper value. Right. So not entirely realized. Correct. And that's, so there's risk in there. I mean, heaven mm-hmm. forbid the markets go significantly sideways for a long period of time. It could evaporate, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which gets into conversations that we end up having with our managers. I actually had one this morning with somebody who has a piece of a very significant unicorn. It was, well, do I sell 25% into the next private round? Because I can 1x my fund on it. And you're like, hmm. It's hard decisions. Hard decisions. And there's mm-hmm. an argument for doing it. it, it What's your general advice? Um, we faced that decision before for the, a newish fund. Take, take yeah. the fund off the table, right? Yeah. Let the rest well, ride. I, I would say yes. That is a common wisdom, which is if it's maybe a max of 30% of your position, if you can return your whole fund. And again, this usually presumes, we usually end up having this conversation with, with earlier investors, like on the cap table, because you also are less able, not that any GP can control when a company goes public or things like that, but you're more removed from the decision making. You might not have as much information rights. So you, you want to make sure that you take some of that risk, but also don't, you'd be sort of sad if you sold everything. Maybe not, because who knows, maybe it goes, it's, it's, it's a tough call. So people have been doing that as a way of managing the two options. I'm fascinated by something you said uh, just a few minutes ago. Mm-hmm. You said you'll underwrite a Series A fund to a 3X, even if they don't have any historical track record. Oh, no, no, not that, if they're net new. So we have I'm not, not we, and, and we're, we're asking ourselves these questions, like should we and could we, is backing somebody that's never managed institutional capital before. We have not done that. We have backed people who are spinning out of a fund ah, and see. starting something new. Um, we've backed people who were, there's, call it two or three GPs, and only one of them has the long, longer institutional track record, and maybe the others only have angel, and maybe some have like the operating strength. But we haven't done the, I've never invested anybody else's capital but my own. Mm-hmm. And that's, we can talk about this, but it's, it's harder for institutional funds to do that. And I know you had Graham from Sandana on your podcast before. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And this is one of the reasons why I, 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 there should be more Sandanas in the world, right? Because mm-hmm. there need to be more people like Lotonia Plexo, right? I'll sing all their praises because people that will help somebody institutionalize for the first time is meaningful. And we like partnering with them on, on right. funds because it, it's not that we think there's a lot of opportunity there. It just demands a slightly different um, go to market by the LP. And you want to make sure that you're prepared to do that. Otherwise, I think you leave your GPs hanging. So it's a bit of us thinking through how does it go to market? And you're seeing like what you're, like, you know, what you were talking about with Thunder and some of these other uh, ways of matching people and then operator and recast these ways of also helping some of the new managers think through institutionalizing. Absolutely. Okay. So you talked about return history. I think we knew that was the. The main thing to look for. How about what are other factors that are a little softer underbelly of a selection process? Maybe strategy yep. or well, we follow the same process for everybody, which is getting mm-hmm. to know you through your investment world because that's 
that's who you are from an investing standpoint. Like if I mm-hmm. took away Mark and I just looked at Interplay, I would hopefully build a good sense of what you like and what you do and which entrepreneurs you're picking and who picks you. Mm-hmm. And that's the simplest way I say it is the why you question, which is why mm-hmm. are you, why are you doing this fund? Why are you going after this market? And why do you think you're going to win? And then if there are people that you've invested in that we can talk to, to understand the role that you play, those are, that's basically what we do. And that makes total know, the, sense. The, the blocking and tackling looks like quantitative analysis, references, and understanding the market. We try to spend a lot of time understanding the market. So when someone tells me what their strategies can resonate, I think it's a lot harder if you don't. Like we're pretty, pretty focused on venture. Mm-hmm. Um, it helps then because things, you can hear stories and they, they make sense. That right. Because you'll, you'll like know a simplistic it works. Way. You know that yeah. it works. And even, and even, you know, we back some strategies that to your point of like, does it always look the same? It just doesn't always have to. And right now, what I think is just so fascinating is the, the distribution of ways funds are happening. Like ventures both becoming incredibly concentrated in big funds, like the rise of the mega funds and all the, the fundraising last year and this year clearly is getting hoovered up by a lot of big funds. But at the same time, the new end of venture is being really distributed amongst scouts and angels and syndicate structures. And there's, I don't have a count, we're just not equipped to count it. Um, the number of smaller five to 10, $15 million funds, operators getting involved, that's super distributed. Right. And, people, and, and Angel uh, List is putting all that on steroids. Yeah. Which is so interesting to see how all that's going to play out. I mean, I definitely hear of traditional seed funds getting crowded out because of these newer entrants. Interrupts. A little side note here. I was talking to one of our LPs recently who was asking me for trends. Mm. He's One of the reasons he invests is market insight. Yep. And I said, one of the most fascinating things I'm seeing happening is the full depth of institutionalization of capital for the entrepreneur. When I started in this business uh, in 06, it was the Series A was the first round. Mm-hmm. And friends and family was everything before that. And then the seed came out. And to see pre-seed as a category is so exciting for me because I, I believe it's going to take thousands more entrepreneurs who don't have an un- a rich uncle to write that first check and put them in play. Yep. I think that, bring, it, you know, talk about democratizing one of the things we want to do with Thunder. I think it democratizes the playing field uh, in a really productive way to get more people with good ideas, regardless of background, into the game, getting training, and maybe building something awesome. Yep. And we're seeing, I don't have a front row seat to this. I always joke around and be like, the LPs are like the peanut gallery in the back row of this baseball field. Watching <laughs> <laughs> but we're seeing syndicates come together of operators so that you, let's say you're starting a company, you can get money from people who are doing it at the angel level who individually may only have a couple thousand dollars, right? But collectively right. can support you. And that's super interesting and cool and democratizing. And that zero to one is so hard, right? Right. What, what happens in the world if everyone's an innovator or at least a huge chunk of people? Good things, I think. Good things, right? Yeah. I think yeah. I also when I look at the world and my son's like, mom, why are you guys all destroying the world? Don't you know climate change is an issue? I'm like, but wait, there's smart people fixing it. Right. <laughs> We're hopeful. We're hopeful. Okay, so there's other two other dimensions that come up a fair bit for folks who have ever raised capital. Um, one, it's around the team, obviously. And one of the heuristics I hear that a lot of LPs are focused on is the time the team has worked together, usually as a signal for the durability of the strength of the relationship, and the access to co-investments. Where do you guys register on those two dimensions? I'll own all my biases. It's lovely to see people who have worked together because what you're reading for is... Can, the obvious, like, can they work together? And money is a funky product. Let, let's, let's like be open door about it. Like the LP's product is money. The GP's product is money. 
GPs are trying to make money, which is good. You want an economically motivated investor. Um, but it's also, it can bring in a lot of tensions. And so how does all that interplay? And do they agree on deals? Great do they word. not agree? Right? How do they make decisions? Like all those things, this is why LPs default to the, well, how long have you worked together? Because it's just an easy way of saying, have you figured out a way of working through all this stuff and celebrating the successes? And has somebody had so much success, they don't want to do it anymore? Like all that stuff. It's just a quick, easy way. That said, I don't think it's any guarantee. I know many funds where people are not happy working together, but they're making so much money working together that they can't break up. Hmm. I don't know. And, right? Would you invest in that? The dysfunctional marriage where everyone's kind of locked in? Would you? I want to say maybe, to be honest, because hmm. A, I think it happens more often than people want to talk about. Because certainly after funds, ex- after funds or people leave funds, you hear a lot more of the broken glass than during. So I don't think it didn't exist. Um, right. And just because it's this weird world in venture, just because people aren't always happy doesn't mean they're not going to make some great investments. And sometimes the discord about different opinions leads to a good decision. But if somebody, but there's also some level, which what I think you're getting at is, which is it's so dysfunctional internally and that it's, it's a difficult partnership and you don't think it's going to be productive, then no. And sometimes, honestly, I think this is why LPs have struggled with the two-dimensional Zoom world. There are a lot of... Hmm. experiences you have being in the same room with people at annual meetings at pitch sessions and sure. zoom really takes a lot of that out of the table just because it's 2d and i think that's really been tricky for lps because we've certainly been in pitch sessions where there's odd dynamics and you're like yeah. oh this is so weird are they getting along are they not getting right. along while they're pitching us this is kind of what you can do with that <laughs> save it till you leave right <laughs> at the very least act for an hour i mean come on <laughs> Well, nope. yes, but it's, I'm sure I'm sure it's similar when entrepreneurs come in to pitch the business. I don't Happens think any of this is any different. Right? It's the same. It's, it's the, the same. same. I, I have a good friend who uh, started a fund a couple years ago to remain nameless. And he and his partner invest two totally different ways. Yep. One's not right. One's not wrong. They just look for completely different styles and how they decide to write checks. It was so dysfunctional. They just cut the capital in half and said, you do half and I'll do half. That's unfathomable. And so I think for folks out there who are listening, who are considering the LP path as a high net worth or otherwise, these are real considerations just to understand the culture and the dynamic of the folks involved. Yep. And then you had asked about co-investments. Yeah, Do you want to go there? Yeah, let's go. Um, It's always been there, right back in our DFJ days, right? It was was there during that era. I think it's, let me see if you had the same experience. I think it's on steroids now as far Mm. as, LPs saying they want to do co-invest. What I don't know, because I unfortunately SPVs are completely non-transparent and no one collects the information. So sadly, no guts. I don't know how many folks really do. I mean, some folks are structured to do it. Um, and some you know, endowments and foundations are structured to do it. But for a lot of other folks, if you're not, it's hard to make a direct investment decision when it's not your bread and butter. And some Very people, true. Right? And some, some LPs come up this. with the rubrics. Yeah, right? And some LPs come up with the rubrics, which is... Whatever it is, Mark has conviction, and the lead is def- the lead is a lead investor defined in a top tier based on whatever it was. One of these eighteen funds right. will do it, and then other people and I. You tell me this is true. Say they want to do it, and then don't, and that can be frustrating for the GP. It's it's a weird signal. So uh, when we raised our last fund, not all, but some of the larger uh, pockets really wanted to know if there's a co invest option, and we do have one. And we, do a, we see a lot of activity that doesn't fit our very narrow thesis for the fund. We have a very specific way we invest. And so when something's outside of that, they're a little too early, a little too late, 
or they don't meet one of our heuristics and we love the deal, well, our, our partnership wants to write a check individually. But we don't do that really without showing it to the LPs who are invested in our fund. And so what we found pretty quickly is a uh, vast majority of the deals we do are through the fund. But these one-offs, which don't happen that you know, infrequently, maybe every other month, we'll have an SPV that will come up. And what was interesting was we caught a lot of the LPs off guard because they had earmarked a certain amount of dollars to our fund and suddenly they realized they were going to make a lot of money if they invested in everything we did. And that wasn't what they had budgeted for. And so we told them there was going to be co-investment, but they just didn't, I think it just didn't register. They said they're in for X dollars. And now if they want to put 2X or 3X to work, they can. And it'll be a fantastic portfolio. So my coaching to folks, because we've had a lot of people shocked by this. Um, And so LPs will say, hey, I'm just going to invest in the fund. I don't know what to do with the rest. Okay. Other folks are saying, well, is this the right, is this the good one? The good SPV? And I, I tell them, we don't do an SPV unless we think it's awesome. So I, I recommend they think about it programmatically. This has been my advice to folks. Mm-hmm. But earmark an amount of money for SPVs outside of your LP commitment. And it could be zero if you don't have budget for it, but it could be as much as you want it to be. And divide it by the number of uh, SPVs I think we're going to do a year. So I give them a, an estimate and they just become automatic checks. Otherwise, they're paying us to make v- venture decisions but then are playing VC once it comes to them. It's just not their expertise. They're real estate wizards or credit wizards or anything. So it's a, um, it's, it's a challenging situation, I think, for LPs uh, to do the co-invest. But it's fantastic because they got a relationship mm-hmm. with someone they trust and they can see deals that we think are so exceptional mm-hmm. we have to chase. Well, um, and usually that comes you. across. Thank you on behalf of your LPs for actually thinking through how many you might do per year. I've never had anyone tell me that because it's too... It's just so hard to know, and I don't think they think that same way. Um, well, we, think, we think about our business, and maybe we're going a little off topic here, just where we're going to go with it, um, as, a, as a company, not a bank. Hmm. We think about the operational throughput, our KPIs around number of deals. This must be stuff, I mean, you're looking at your business that way. You're thinking about um, how many dollars are going out, how many dollars are coming in. You must be looking to your GPs to be thinking about, okay, how many deals do they do a year? When, is, when are they going to be fully deployed? Mm-hmm. Right? These, mm-hmm. You have to be able to project out some operational KPIs to function. Yes, but when you're speaking, so part of the, one of the reasons why we structure our business in the beginning to think through with working with inst- people that manage institutional capital is exactly things like this, where that's just, no one tells you that when you start a fund. Mm. Right. When you're starting, right. A, right. Like this is, I mean, now maybe there's some programs for it, but in the beginning, in the old days, no, it was about like, I'm going to go get great deals. And you're like, yes, but you are running a firm. Right. And it's, and it, those are the attributes, which are not always as wildly you know, sexy and interesting. And it's not the same thing as saying I was like an investor in Coinbase or Uber or pick your favorite company. Um, it's more like, yeah, it's exactly this. Like, what's my pacing going to be? What happens when, you know, reserves are tricky. I mean, figuring Absolutely. out your reserves, like, we don't know what the rounds are going to look like. And then do you, do you leave a whole half your fund for reserves and then pick it as basis companies come or do you reserve per company? Both can work, both cannot work. How, do you, how and when do you recycle? Which again, these are all, these sound like very boring, tedious things, but can be the difference between significant return multiples on a fund. Completely agree. Right? What, what's the right reserve thinking for the GPs listening out there to pick your brain? You've probably seen a lot of different strategies. What, what do you like? Well, <laughs> This is where I think 
multiple strategies can work. We're seeing a lot of people now reserve, well, in the first funds that are small, reserves are not always possible. And then it's a bit about getting your ownership when you can get it and holding on. And, you know, you, you buy up as much as you can in the beginning because you'd rather use your money that way. But then your reserves kind of vary depending on how much you think you're going to play at the A and the B. And what does that valuation mean vis-a-vis your fund size? And I don't think there's a simple answer, I guess, is the challenge, because it really depends on what kind of investor you want to be. We have some investors who are like, I'm going as far big as I can on ownership in the day one. And then that's, the, you know, and then that's, I'll, I'll keep going, but it's not as big a deal. I have other folks who, have, and everyone can be successful. So it just depends on how you play the different parts together are like, no, we're going to put a toehold in and as, and then we're going to try to fit money in, in between rounds. And there's different mm-hmm. strategies for doing that. I had one investor who's very successful, who's like, listen, I figure out what 1% cost me in that company. And then I just do the math on, is this 1% going to make me more money than something else? And I just, and I was like, you know, that works too. It's, it's, it's a beauty of venture. There is not one size fits all. They're just different components that always come into play in your portfolio construction and the size of your fund and your ownership and your checks. And then the size of your exits, all just different toggles that you have to be conscious of. Right. right? It's like one formula. And if you're going to move this yeah. lever down, you have to move something else up. Okay, how about sectors? How about sectors? I argued with Ian Sigalow about this on the podcast. Ooh. Do you know Ian? Yeah. At Craycroft? He's great. He's smart. Yeah. Yeah. I, I said, this is the smartest person <laughs> I'm ever going to do. I had to get ready for him. I've known him for a long time. And so I said to Ian, I said, tell me your sectors. And he rattled off some fantastic sounding sectors. And I said, is there a company in tech that if it's performing well, will not fit into one of those sectors? And the answer is, I feel like most VCs are concocting sector concepts, sometimes with creative names, sometimes without, that basically cover everything. So they can get it, they're, they're going to do the good deals, more or less. And they want to put my numbers up. That's what matters most. So what's the right answer for sectors? Because I want to invest in good companies. And uh, that's not the popular answer in a fundraise with LPs. Yeah. Well, as one of my wise GPs said to me, they said, these are, there's one way I talk about my world to the LPs. And there's another way I talk right. about my world to the entrepreneurs. And it's not that the information is any different. It just needs to be packaged differently. Right. And I was like, true that. <laughs> <laughs> it goes a little bit to what you were saying about when, when um, an LP is like, oh, but you're my seed fund. So please yeah. stay in seed. Yeah. LPs may or may not have a view on sectors and therefore will try to solve for different things. Um, and they also, there should be some alignment between why would you be able to pick a great company that's out of your field of experience, which I think sector is just a, a loose, maybe potentially lazy way of looking it's a proxy at it. That, yeah. We haven't been, I think what I have found, the way I think about it now is this market is so competitive. If you can find an area that's not competitive, like good on you, but it's so competitive in so many places, you need to have a reason to be on the cap table more than ever. I don't think that was ever untrue. But back when there was like, you know, 10 VCs on Sand Hill Road and it was a really ivory tower world, maybe a little bit less. So you having money was the reason to be on a cap table. But that's mm-hmm. like this market has plenty of money. Um, doesn't all get fairly distributed. There's lots of entrepreneurs I know who are sitting here like, well, if there's so much money, why is it still so damn hard to raise? And that right. are other reasons we can talk about. But I think the reason you need to be on a cap table and what's your perspective. So it's for us, it's much more interesting to hear. It might be a sec- it might come out in a sector. Like we have some very enterprise focused investors, and it's because they have a perspective on that sector. It's not just because they're telling me it's enterprise. Like, well, that's fine. I don't. If you're right. picking enterprise right for enterprise for sake, it's the right sector for them because they have a perspective on it. Or we do have some thematic investors who are passing on huge chunks of the industry because it doesn't fit their theme. And so they're you- not going to get like they would. They would never have had Snowflake in their portfolio. 
which is a bummer because it'd be nice if they had snowflake in their portfolio. Right. Right. <laughs> but it's not the theme they're doing. They're doing something else. They're doing consumer. They're doing a version of consumer. They're doing something else, and it's just right. not their thing. So uh, how do you feel about these specialty, let's call the edge case funds or specialty funds? Things that have, firms that have, uh, I'm thinking about the edge cases, specialty funds being one of them. Uh, you get emerging managers, solo GPs, specialty funds. Let's start there. How do you think about the, the role they play in a portfolio, their, your interest in them, et cetera? So I don't think we think about it any differently. The specialty has to be something that we think has legs. And it's sort of a question of like how niche is the specialty. And sometimes it's, if it's super niche, maybe it needs to be a really small fund. Or it just, it just sounds like it's niche. And the reality is it's not as ginormous. And people just haven't thought, like, way back in the day when we launched um, Sapphire Partners, we had a thesis around big data. Mm-hmm. And that was niche back then, which is a ludicrous thing to say. It's ludicrous. But this is also part of the heritage of being able to play with a large software company that was RLP that was trying to figure out big data. So it just informed our viewpoint. But we've had multiple funds go after what now is big data, which is like just, and they can take it everywhere, biotech, media, right. like it's that's everywhere. Now a, that's now a sector that matches what I was saying before, where it kind Correct. of applies almost everywhere. And then there's some which but are still But for a moment like, it wasn't. But for a moment it wasn't. And there's some like, I'm going to pick on aerospace because we have not yet backed an aerospace dedicated fund because I, I don't know. And back in, the, back in the day, fintech was niche. Hmm. Right. <laughs> it changes, that's for sure. It changes. So. Usually we try to, again, we just kind of go into the, what's your perspective? And is it, is it, can it, is it an inch deep, but really wide? Like we have generalist solo GP funds, but they have something about how they pick an entrepreneur that works. And that's really where their perspective is, but it can come into any area. Um, and then we have other ones who are like, like this enterprise uh, solo GP, who's got a particular perspective on Jamstack, which sounds really niche, but it's building on top of all this other stuff and the fund's small and it's focused. So you don't worry I about man risk or cultural dynamics. Yeah, we used How to, you, but to you, but to the conversation about the GPs not getting along internally. Mm, there's that too, and that's harder to see. Like we used to not do so single GPs, and then I can't remember what got us over the hump. Something got us over the hump, but then we're like, oh, it's actually much easier man risk. Like we don't, we don't hope anyone gets hurt or stops doing their work for whatever reason. But you know, if it's just you, Mark, doing investing, or just me, you know if it's happening. Whereas when there's multiple people, you're not really quite sure because it's a team, and that's the beauty of a team. But it's also the opa- the opa- opacity, opacity. Yeah, whatever yeah, that both works. Yeah, <laughs> Everything works here. But I do think I know lots of LPs that get stymied by the solo GP, and sometimes it's also a how much money can one person manage, and how many companies can one person manage, and those are very fair questions, which a lot of solo GPs. Because LPs are thinking, I want to be with you, fund one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Like the goal is to be with you for a long time, probably longer that you want to be in venture. And how many portfolio companies are they and how quickly will they exit? And at what point like, can mm. the work that you do work with that structure and all these things, right? Does it scale operationally? It doesn't scale operationally. Yeah. Um, we're seeing some novel strategies getting at it, but I think those are the sort of stereotypical concerns that LPs have and much more the institutional LPs, right? Because they're probably trying to write bigger checks. I think the high net worths and folks that might be more comfortable with it. That makes total sense. Well, there's a pattern in, in my side of the house. The most attractive deals are the most competitive, right? And, Go figure. <laughs> yep. And there's uh, often three to five times more capital chasing them. And the game for us is to cut the line and get in. The dynamic probably applies for you too. Mm-hmm. 
Right. So what happens, you know, when you guys think about finding a manager that is real popular in your community for whatever reason, what's the pitch for you guys getting into the deal? This is the moment where I'm going to give you an underhand pitch uh, <laughs> and, and say, what's the reason someone should take Sapphire Partners money? Well, when we built the firm, we were trying to answer that question. So you can tell me if you think it's answered, but we, we want to be the LP. If you're going to have somebody you're going to call with your hard questions, that's the role that we want to play. We're dedicated to venture. We've got permanent long-term capital. We understand the market. So when you have a question, we can be there. We don't need to be there every day. I don't think LPs should be hanging out every day with their GPs. As lovely as it would be from an LP, the GP has other stuff to do. <laughs> but when you were saying, I'm in the forest, what's going on with the trees? Like that's, that's when LP should be there for you. Mm. And I think that's where we just constructed our business to play that role. We're not going to play the role of saying like, well, we're going to do private equity and we're going to do publics and we're going to do all those things. And we're going to try to write a hundred million dollar check into you. Like that's not our role. There's other LPs that play that role. We are going to be the thoughtful, dedicated, permanent, all-in person. And I think the other thing is, I think our check size is relatively friendly because what we want to do is be able to collaborate with other LPs so that the GP can, can choose, but not have to get crowded out. There's some LPs that try to put, you know, they do need to put a hundred million dollars to work into a fund. And that also challenges them on which they can't do the smaller funds. And we would like to be able to flex. So we work with them. We try to construct a world where we could do all those things. And when we were constructing our vehicle, it was not lost in us that most funds are not actually investing over three to four years. Fund, funds get raised every two years, mm-hmm. sometimes faster, sometimes a little bit slower. And so we constructed our, our, our thinking in advance saying, we know this is true. So let's not, let's not be surprised by it. I think your permanent capital story is a big differentiator. On the being the advisor to the GPs, part of it I, I hear from you is uh, being focused on the sector, on the space, the stage more or less. Um, but how do you make sure you have enough time? Are you guys limiting funds per partner? It sounds like you're pretty concentrated. Is that part of the narrative with us? Um, I think part of it, I think it's certainly a component and some, you know, some GPs are like, you know, we'll catch you at the annual meeting and we'll like have lunch every six months. And it doesn't say like, you can be thoughtful and engaged and productive. This is why we do a lot of the thought leadership that we do. So we do work on our side and then share it. Uh, my colleague, Laura and Hillary wrote this great blog on recycling. And like, that's fantastic. No, no GP was like, you know, it, it spawned a lot of awesome conversations, not just with emerging managers, like recycling is hard and it's hard to know and so we work with our established on it too but we didn't to your point about how are you there like we we, we try to think through questions that we're going to have in advance and produce the information and if it's useful for them that's great and if they don't want to read it like no harm no foul right on that note can you tell us about open lp yeah so we started this with a, a couple other lps i want to say six seven years ago now but again my frames of time are getting muddied um, and it was, as you said, what we, we looked around the world and I was actually having lunch with Chris Duvos. I don't know if you know Chris Duvos of, of Super LP, Ahoy Capital. And, the, and he was like, hey, don't you think all these GPs that ask us these questions, we want to know what LPs are thinking? And I was like, yes. And there's That's nowhere to go. Right. And it wasn't so. And then we just took it and we just were like, well, let's make it big because you can see in the GP to entrepreneur world how much information is available and all the blogging and the podcasting and all this stuff. And there is so much less between LPs and GPs or even entrepreneurs that want to participate. So we create a platform that really just aggregates and amplifies 
the point is to, to support everybody. It's not just my voice. It's not just your voice. It's an aggregator and amplifier. So we can take up whatever content we can find and put it both. We have a hashtag. Um, we have a website and create this and not just democratize information, but also like help explain the business a bit because it's, it's, it's way more opaque than it needs to be. And it's just, it's just so clear that this is what works and giving the entrepreneur response to when GPs do this. So it was a, a bit of a no-brainer, but it, go, it goes to your point of, well, why did we do it? Because we saw the need and we could. And this is part of what just makes us a different LP because we're not running, you know, endowments are a business for a school or a hospital. We're not doing that. Like, I don't have to go meet a board and talk about how many go fund a building. I, I can spend my time doing this. And, and we just deployed that time that people don't see all the other work that LPs have to do. We're not fundraising. I'm not hitting the right. trying to raise. Like, so we, we take that time and we try to be in service of our community by doing these things. That's wonderful. I'm going to draw a parallel and then ask a question. Okay. So a uh, long time ago, back when we were actually at the same firm back at DFJ, I started blogging. And my mm-hmm. mission as an entrepreneur who felt like he was undercover in the venture world was to expose the process for raising venture capital. So I was writing three posts a day. Wow. For, five year, for five years. And I wrote a table of contents and it was a chronological handbook for entrepreneurs to raise venture. Eventually, I had a, a gentleman come in and just for a meet and greet who was a best-selling author. And he sat me down and he said, are you planning on making a book? And I said, no, I don't believe in paper. He said, can I be frank with you? Are you fucking kidding? <laughs> so two years later, after people asking for the book version, I made a book. Uh, I turned that content into a book, uh, and it's out there. It's called The Fundraising Rules. Is OpenLP going to become a book? Um, oh, I cannot believe you just asked me that question. It's so awesome. Um, wait for an announcement. It's not a book, but there will be something coming out very soon that we can help pull things. I can't say more. Our head of marketing will kill me. But yes, I'll let you know. Okay, great. <laughs> great. When, when that comes out, let us know. We'll tag it okay. in the show notes. Okay, awesome. This was great. We used up an hour already. We didn't cover everything I wanted to cover, but this was so rich in, con- in content. Um, I think we're going to cut it here. Anything else? Uh, let me ask you one question before we leave mm-hmm. off. I usually do this with the entrepreneurs. Um, what's the most important insight, b- bit of wisdom you'd want to give to the GPs out there? Thing the just do better or watch out. What is that? I, I, I always ask this of our GPs, like, are you enjoying it? Because it is a long road. It looks sexy and, and like glamorous from the outside. And there's days that there are, but it is a long road. If you've got to do a job for eight or 10 years before you make your carry, and that's like the first check. That's not even like all the checks, right? I, I just think it's so important to be, I have, no, I have no actual scientific data to support this. I think in some respect, if you don't love what you do on this, some aspect of it, I think that feeds... I think that feeds the great performers. And I, again, I don't have, I haven't like climbed around Sequoia to see how this works or not, but <laughs> there just has to be that. And if you're miserable, it's not a good role and go find something else to do. Right. GPs will say it's a great way to get rich slowly. Oh, thank and then you. wait for the LP side of it. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> hey, thank you for being on today. It was fantastic having you. Uh, we're grateful. Thanks for making time. Thank you for having me. That was solid. Beezer is super sharp, as you guys just heard. Big thank you for her to coming on the pod and sharing some of her wisdom. I think there's a ton of great info in there for GPs and aspiring LPs. If you liked what you heard, please hook us up with a like or a five-star review. And feel free to share with a friend. You can find me on Twitter at MPD. 
And to hear more of my conversations with innovators, subscribe on YouTube, Facebook, or any major podcast platform. Just search for Innovation with Mark Peter Davis.